Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There's very little that's moderate about our politics today, and one of the most uncomfortable places to be is a moderate in politics. Bob Dold represented the most Democratic district in the country, held by a Republican, he being a Republican, and very nearly won a district that Hillary Clinton was winning by 32 points in the northern suburbs of Chicago. He came away after serving two terms in Congress uh, with a real bird's-eye understanding of the challenges that we face. And I got a chance to sit down with him the other day at the Institute of Politics, where he's been a fellow this spring. Bob Dold, welcome. Uh, let me thank you first for the spending your spring here at the Institute of Politics. You made a big impression on our young people here. Well, it's been an absolute honor to be here, and I, I thank you, David, for giving me the opportunity to come and, and have a conversation with some of these young people. They are uh, truly a gifted bunch. You, uh, I, I want to get into, um, and I will, uh, what life is like as a moderate Republican in Washington in the modern era. Uh, but before I do, I, I want to talk a little bit about your own, uh, your own journey um, and uh, first of all, how did the Dolds get here? Were you guys original originals? In terms of what? In terms of getting here to the U.S.? Yes, getting here, yeah, to, getting here to the U.S. Um, you know, I think there was some original. I think we traced some folks back to the Mayflower at some point in time. I wish I had a, a clearer picture of what that looks like, but uh, have been uh, in the Chicagoland area. My grandparents were here, and so this has been home for a long time. And uh, So tell me about C. Norman Dold. Oh, my gosh. So C. Norman Dold, my grandfather, uh, grew up in, in uh, Norwood, Ohio, and uh, went to a little school in, in Ohio, Denison University, which ended up to be a family school. I was, the, I think, the 23rd in my family to go. So he and my grandmother met there. And a very strong uh, layman Christian and uh, was kind of laid the foundation and got into the pest control business and um, we have uh, we've kind of been here in the Chicagoland area uh, basically ever since the, they graduated from the, college. And, and yours is so, – I read somewhere yours is like, like the oldest pet, pet the old, pest control yeah. – Exactly. Uh, People thought that was perfect the, for Washington. The, in the, 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 yeah, in the, the old, country? The, the oldest pest control company in the country. We know that it started in 1860 uh, or can prove it to 1860. We think it actually started in 1845 and um, have, uh, you know – Basically. And were the Dolds affiliated with it way back then? So back in 1860, Solomon Rose started the company, and so it's two families, five generations. 
And um, so Daniel Rose was Solomon Rose's son, and the Rose family and the Dolds were very close. And when my grandfather graduated from Denison University, he worked for Procter & Gamble and then was pulled away to go work for Rose Exterminator Company at the time and became the general manager of all the the Rose operations, which at, at that point in time were coast-to-coast coast from San Francisco to New York. That's a lot of pests uh Listen, the pests aren't going anywhere, uh, right? Over. Exactly. It's a lot, <laughs> lot of pests. Are you now? Did you always know that you you were going to go into that business? Well, it's a being a family business. That was something that, in my own mind's eye, uh, you know, my my hero, as it were, is my father. I mean, he is the the person that when uh, when I was kind of struggling which way to go, what to do, I had a, a very easy path, and that. I would usually generally follow what what uh, my father did from you know Nutria High School to Denison. Uh, the difference we started to vary. He went to business school at, at the University of Chicago. I went to Northwestern. But yeah, uh, that's quite a schism, right? I there. tell you what, we we had a little schism on that front. But <laughs> um, but ultimately, going into the family business was something uh, was always for me. It was going to be a when, not if, uh, and so uh, that ultimately was the case. And. Uh, you know, I'm in, involved in the pest control business to this day. So, you know, I, I read about your uh, upbringing in the northern suburbs of Chicago, including the fact that, you, you know, you went into the family business and so on. And it's kind of the – it's sort of like your classic American story. You were the quarterback of the football team and the captain of the wrestling team and the lacrosse team and president of your class and uh, at Denison and uh, – all of that. I mean, it, it it sounds like a Norman Rockwell painting. Well, it, it, I have been extremely blessed, and I give a lot of that credit to my parents, uh, who raised uh, me with uh, three sisters, and so uh, very tolerant uh, of, of women and had to be as we grew up with a, a single bathroom and that sort of a situation. But <laughs> um, listen, the Norman Rockwell painting— So that's where you learn compromise. Oh, you have to. Uh, and have to learn compromise in a pretty significant way. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, scouting and, and that sort of thing, always part of the upbringing, and I think, you know, are, are part of that. Boy whole, Scouts, Eagle Scouts. Exactly, and, and are part of that Norman Rockwell-type painting. And I hope that my wife and I can try to provide that uh, for our children. But we want to do it not just for our children, but we hope that people have that sense of Americana regardless of what community they grow up in. And ultimately, for me, well, I realize that there are, people out there that are struggling with a lot bigger issues than the ones that I dealt with growing up. And, um, you know, I was blessed to be in, in that situation. And I, my hope is that for our country, we get to a point where communities in the inner city, uh, uh, regardless of state, uh, have that same type of an opportunity. It's funny, you, you I mean, you, you, you raise this issue of and, and empathy somehow has become a dirty word in our politics that, you know, empathy is a sign of softness or um, liberalness or so on. But it seems like everyone in politics could use a little bit more empathy and a little bit more uh, willingness to understand uh, not just other people's experiences, but also where their points of view come from. Not only do I think it's healthy, I think it, it, it shines a light on kind of a, a whole different opportunity for solutions. And so not only this idea of empathy, but this idea of understanding. And there's, I think, too little of it right now to take the time to understand where people may be coming from, which is a, a point of view that, frankly, is not wrong. It may be just different. And 
ultimately, if we're going to get out of the mess that we find ourselves in, in any particular issue that you might want to go down, the only way that we're going to get out of that mess is by people finding some common ground and, and working on it together. So there's going to be a bipartisan solution. And ultimately, that's throughout history been one of the only ways that we've, we know how to solve problems. Yeah, but it's hard to find Hard it's to find. Extremely that difficult. Yeah, yeah. When you were in Congress and you did two stints in Congress, and we'll get into the history of that. Uh, but as long as we're on this empathy uh, subject, you were thrown together with uh, members from all over the country. Um, what did you learn from them? What did you? What? What? How did? people from other places in the country and other experiences, including inner city communities, how did that impact on you? Well, I mean, for me, I wanted to make sure that I, for one, was listening to where people were coming from. And uh, somebody that uh, was a mentor to me pulled me aside when I first got to Congress and said, if you want to be successful, you need to understand three things. You need to understand the rules the rules of the game and kind of the procedures that happen in Congress. You need to become an expert in something, some field of sorts, and you need to always keep your word. And the idea behind becoming an expert is is that you want to make sure that people are coming to you and the like. And ultimately, for me, it was trying to listen to people that might have been more, uh, had more experience or might have an expertise in a certain area. But I think the, the, the opportunity for success is to really highlight and make sure that you're taking an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper with those relationships to understand where people are coming from. And that's not just with those on the same side of the aisle. That's with those on the other side of the aisle as well. And I will tell you that, you know, to this day, you know, there are some very good friends on the other side of the aisle that uh, if called, I'd be there in a second for them. You know, I, I think about this in terms of some of these really divisive issues that we deal with. Uh, today. One of them is guns. You know, you yeah. talk about the inner city. We're sitting here on the south side of Chicago, not a mile from here. Uh, you know, you, you have uh, combat going on and, and oftentimes young kids involved in it and young kids, even younger kids, the victims uh, of it. So there's a kind of desperation uh, there. And, and yet uh, uh, there's also a strong feeling in you know, rural communities and uh, small, small town, smaller town America that uh, gun rights are uh, are sacrosanct, and therefore any effort to control them is uh, is is blasphemous. Uh, right. So uh, you dealt with that a little bit. Uh, t- talk Absolutely. to me about an issue like that and and what your experience was. Well, we face some significant issues in the Chicagoland area where the have the highest murder rate in the country here in Chicago, and literally just a stone's throw from where we sit right now, uh, is is a, a war zone. It's mm-hmm. a battle zone. And even listening to some of the academics here that have embedded themselves, so Forrest Stewart, who's done a significant amount of work with some of these gangs and just kind of listening to him, we know that there's a significant problem. And so how do we balance the rights of the Second Amendment, which I think are important, can't pick and choose what parts of the Constitution we want to follow with having some reasonable restrictions that people can understand to say, you know what, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. Whether it be background checks that, frankly, right now, if you were to go into a gun shop, they're doing the background checks right now. Closing the gun show loophole, making sure that we have some sort of a mechanism out there where we can try to reduce the violence. Because 
honestly, David, as we look together, I can sit with people on the other side of the aisle, even people on uh, that think the Second Amendment is is sacrosanct, as you say. And the thing that we'll agree on is we all want to reduce gun violence. So the people, the reason why people want to keep their, their have the right to keep and bear arms isn't necessarily to go have gun violence out there in the streets. They want to be able to protect their home or they want to go hunting or do those other things. Well, they would argue, I I disagree with this, but they would argue that if more people are armed, somehow you'll have less gun violence because people will be able to defend themselves. Well, there there is that argument to to be had, but I don't believe, but again, going back to the point, they want less gun violence. Mm -hmm. So how do we get to that? At least let's agree that we can start with the premise that we want to reduce gun violence and what works and what what doesn't work but i do believe when we you know whether keeping the guns out of you know violent felons keeping guns out of the hands uh, of those that have a mental illness or are going through a potential problem uh, those are things that i think are the right move and as you know i took a lot of heat for coming out with some of those uh, positions but i think it's the right thing to yeah, do yeah well let me ask you uh, now obviously you were cross pressured because you come from a uh, uh, you came from a district that is uh, more progressive on those those kinds of issues, maybe more conservative on fiscal issues, which sort of reflects your political profile. But of one former congressman from your district, Abner Mikva, was the sort of the leading proponent of gun control uh, in the U.S. Senate. So there's a history uh, of this, but uh, within within um, the sort of mainstream of Republican politics today, yours would not be the the position you just articulated right. would not be uh, an acceptable position. And the NRA leverages quite a bit of influence. They leverage a significant amount of influence, uh, as do other organizations on the left for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But uh, I am not here to say that the NRA is not powerful and has a significant amount of influence. But what I do think is important is that people have to recognize and have to stand up to say, we have a problem that is happening right here in our country. And there has to be, uh, I mean, the fear is that there's going to be a slippery slope that if they start to infringe upon somebody's rights, that it's they're going to come and take their guns away. And we have to make sure that those on the right and the left recognize that we're not coming to take away your Second Amendment rights. We want to talk about having a common-sense discussion about reasonable and rational things that can reduce this gun violence. Let me ask you this. Um, I know that you were very, very well liked by your colleagues. In fact, um, many of them who I spoke to said, you got to get told to come and, and, and be a fellow at your institute, and I appreciate their recommendation. But um, how many of them do you think were there not? And, and let's stipulate, because I don't want to get into a partisan discussion. There are pressures on the left and the right. Sure. How many, how many of your colleagues uh, left to their own devices would gravitate to the position that you've taken. I mean, you must have these discussions and people are probably frank with you about the pressures they face. Absolutely. Uh, and whether it's scoring of a certain bill that they need to have Meaning a perfect, the rating, the rating so that, that the well, NRA or that, and, and honestly, some of my colleagues uh, on the right would say, look, the NRA is the liberal organization because there's more conservative uh, pro-gun groups out there that uh, they need to try to placate. And ultimately, I think if left to their own devices, we'd have more people that would agree 
that this isn't uh, a ploy to take people's guns away. This is a ploy to try to say we want to put that step in place, whether it be on on the background checks or doing a, a whole host of things. And you know that may be a third of them uh, on the re- on the Republican side. That um, would that would be. That'd be significant, though. That would be a significant, uh, a significant group, no question about it. Yeah. But we saw even in the United States Senate when that opportunity uh, to have some some meaningful movement on uh, the gun issue, and it didn't pass even when the Democrats were in control. So this is an issue that's going to hit conservative Democrats as well. We uh, let me get back just a little bit to your uh, to your journey. You 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 said in an interview once that you politics was always around your home that you was pervasive right I mean, it's not not everybody i talk to says that i mean some people come to it in other ways tell me how uh, how you saw politics in, in in your own home and well politics um you know for me was was one of those things that my father was a precinct captain and so it was almost a chore for the republican party for the republican mm-hmm. party and we would come home and my friends would, you know, come home after school with me and they would see these bags of literature stacked up in, in the entranceway, you know, right outside the door. And they would run because <laughs> they knew that my father was going to sucker them and grab them and say, we're going to deliver literature so that it would kind of make things pass quickly. Um, and I, I tell people that my, my father would take me out delivering literature. And I think that oftentimes I was the bait because as a seven-year-old, you know, walking the streets to deliver literature, they're going to answer, I mean, somebody's going to open the door if there's a seven-year-old yes. there. They were selling pancake breakfast tickets or something. Who knows what we were going to do? But And then uh, my father had an opportunity to talk to them about the upcoming election or that sort of a thing. So, you know, I have been involved in that type of a capacity since a very young age. And it was really uh, one of the things in the family that it was an opportunity that, that we were able to give back. My father uh, ran for a state representative long time ago, I think when I was one, I'd take a look at some of the pictures and, um, you know, that was in the days where they had, I think, three representatives from yeah, a, a right. given three district. Yeah, right, districts, yeah. And um, in any event, it was like, I think it was nine people in the primary and he ended up not winning. But, um, the, you know, you, you've got to be in the arena if you want to make a change. And so, you know, for us, it was good dining room table discussions about what was happening and uh, around uh, the country at the time. And, Politics for us was always one of those things that was encouraged by mom and dad to go volunteer and get active, and and that's kind of a typical dinner around the Dold uh, household was was talking about. And this politics. was in Nutrier Township. Nutrier Township, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there was a there was a a great old character who you probably knew in Democratic politics up there. Lynn Williams was the township committeeman. Okay, uh, for years, and he was a. Uh, you know, he was like a liberal stalwart fighting what was then a very powerful Republican uh, yeah, we've seen organization. things shift a little bit up there yeah. uh, in, in the last couple of decades. Yeah. Well, when Mikva got elected up there in the northern suburbs, he moved from the south side of Chicago to right. Evanston and got elected up there. That was like an earthquake. In fact, the Tribune endorsed Abner Mikva in one of those elections. And when the Chicago Tribune, the, uh, the sort of the, the, the bedrock Republican newspaper, endorsed a Democrat, it was like national news uh, <laughs> back then. But now it's the, the, the ultimate um, the ultimate swing district. I, I, will, I, will get, I want to get to that because you and, and, and uh, the uh, 
current representative Brad Schneider, you're like Graziano and Zale. You 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 just had a series of heavyweight battles. Well, they they were middleweights, but right. uh, battles uh, one election after another. And I want to talk to you uh, about that. But talk to me about you. You didn't. It wasn't you didn't just go from being a small businessman to running for you had a number of political experiences leading up to that. I did. And so um, I was kind of always engaged in politics and whether it be school politics, that sort of stuff. But uh, for me, my first kind of interaction into national politics was doing uh, some advance work for Ronald Reagan. It was my first advance trip in in, uh, Columbus, Ohio. And then, really, did you know what? How did you know what advance work was? I didn't. Did they, I had just no threw clue. You in the breach, there? it was. It was literally somebody, a friend, was doing uh, some of the advance work on the advance team and needed some volunteers, and so pulled me from Denison, which is just a few miles away, over to to work the event, and then from there got really engaged and ended up going to work. In what the, do you remember? Did you get to meet Reagan then? I did. Mm-hmm. And um, so this was at the really the tail end of his administration. It was really kind of the ramp up for um, for George H.W. Bush mm-hmm. uh, and his run. And so he was coming to Columbus, Ohio, into the basketball arena to kind of help George Bush out and uh, kind of be stumping for him uh, through Ohio. And you know, that was just fascinating. Uh, to be some to see and to meet uh, President Reagan at the time, and shortly thereafter, after the election and after he had won, I ended up going to work in um, really the vice president's office doing advance work. Yeah, how did that come it. about? I applied. Right, that was the thing. I, I go to the schools all over the place, and I say, "You want to know the secret about working in the White House?" And they say, "Of course." They all say yes, and I said, "I applied." And the worst thing they can say is no. And so I, I had two opportunities. I could have worked in the presidential news summary which, as you know, was stuck in the fifth floor of the old executive office building, working all odd hours, clipping papers and putting them together at the time. Or I could have worked for vice presidential advance, which was the second floor of the OUB, normal hours. And as as uh, you know, a student in college working in the summer at the White House, I wanted normal hours to go out and have some fun after, yes. after work. So I took the vice presidential advance job. And um, so I, I did the typical intern ship at the White House answering phones and doing all whatever they asked. And uh, the reward was I got to go on the road and do one advance trip and was kind of all hell broke loose on that trip to Cleveland, Ohio. And the lead advance at the time said, get this kid on the road as often as you can. And from that point, it was we worked in, in the advance office every summer and during the campaign until uh, the Clinton. By event. we, you mean you. Meaning me, yes. uh, that I went. And I, you're I, you're I get, using that political we. I do. I use that all the time, <laughs> which I get criticized for. But So I, I went and worked um, doing advance work, which was fascinating. And I encouraged uh, friends on the other side of the aisle to get engaged and do it's the advance the greatest. work. Yeah. Let, let me just take a quick break, and we'll be right back with uh, Bob Dole. Yeah, advance work. Uh is really you, you that is a really really um kind of frantic exciting part of politics and you're like a, you're like the you you're parachuted in and you have to make things happen you have to make things happen and oftentimes really quickly i, I remember as a 19 year old going down to lockheed and we were going to go do something on the floor uh, of lockheed and the ceo basically took his executive vice president out of his office and wanted me to to take his office over. And I said, no, 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 I I don't need to do any of that. I don't need to be here. 
um, you know, I'm going to be on the floor. I don't need to do any of that. But it's those type of experiences that are just fascinating. You get to see the country at a totally different um, set from a different set of or perspective, and you get to do it at a high level, which was just fascinating. And what about Quayle? Would you, you know, he was obviously a uh, kind of a controversial figure. Some people felt he was a young senator from. Indiana. In fact, I covered his first race for the Senate when I was a young reporter at the yeah. Chicago Tribune, and he kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, uh, there was an occasional deer in the headlight quality to him in that first campaign, particularly in his debate with Lloyd, Lloyd Benson. Benson. Yeah. Uh, but what, what was your experience with him? I think the vice president was underrated, um, and you know when I look back at it, uh, because. His son came to Congress with me in 2010, uh, and we were very close. And we were thinking back about it because when we came to Congress or when I was first came to Congress, I was older than the vice president when he became vice president. I said, oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine if I were to be going right now down to the White House to be the vice president of the United States. So, again, very, very young. And, you know, ultimately, if you look and listen to some of his colleagues – with a whole uh, Patriot missile. The Patriot missiles, Ted Kennedy will tell you, or would have told you, that Dan Quayle was instrumental in making sure that the Patriot missiles uh, came to fruition through the United States Senate. So um, there there were some of those moments that you wish you could kind of steal back. Uh, but, uh, you know, I have nothing but the highest respect for Vice President Quayle. So you went to law school. Yeah, I did. Went to Indiana uh, for three years, which was great. Uh, I did a stint over with the New York State Supreme Court uh, for a judge, judge named Judge Golia, who was just a fantastic guy. Uh, was it? Was he? A, what? 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 Who appointed him? Was he? A, he's a Democrat. He's a, he was a Democrat, Democrat mm-hmm. and um, I was looking for an experience, and this was uh, someone that. Uh, really kind of let us kind of dive in and, and was really a, a fantastic experience understanding what was going on in New York at the time. I, in selfish reasons, my uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife, was was in New York, and so I was looking to try to get out that direction, and you understand how that goes. I do. Um, yeah, that's how I became a Chicago <laughs> Which we appreciate. <laughs> um, so did did that stint uh, and then worked for a uh, came my second summer for a mid-size insurance defense firm, Query and Harrow, in Chicago. Uh, and then ultimately... Um, you went to work in the House, right? Then I, Well, after I went, worked for Senator Dole, mm-hmm. uh, doing in my third year of law school was when his campaign got a, got kicked up. What were and you doing? Were you doing advance again? I did advance. Mm-hmm. And again, a small community, so they called and said, can you travel for us? So uh-huh. I literally during... That's my, a skill. Once you get... You're in for life. I mean, they'd probably hire you to do advance right now if your if your station would allow it. Well, what's interesting is <laughs> like even for my wedding, like you can't get the advance hat off. So I'm, I'm looking at certain things, and my wife's rolling her eyes and tables this way, that sort of thing. But yeah, ultimately, I got uh, an opportunity to work with Senator Dole doing advance work on that campaign, and then after that was over, went to the House to work on the Government Reform and Oversight Committee uh, as an investigative counsel, which was which was fascinating. And so did the campaign finance investigation, uh, investigating not only uh, some of the foreign money that was coming in, but there was some, some dollars that you know, I was investigating on the Republican side as well. So, And what, what caused you to uh, – a lot of people go and, and stay. Uh, what caused you to leave? Well, I mean, honestly, I thought I'd done my government service. Um, and 
ultimately was business school that uh, kind of oh, yeah, was you, drawing. You accumulated me. quite a few degrees <laughs> here, and making me feel inadequate. Yeah. No, no. So it was it was business school, and so the opportunity to go to, to uh, Northwestern uh, was uh, was really the impetus to get out of Washington, and so it was time for me to kind of get that next chapter going and. and Take a career in the private sector, and and you came back and you helped out on your. That's where you started getting involved with your family business. Well, I after um, after Kellogg, I um, I actually ended up working in uh, Exodus Communications, which was doing web hosting and during that whole process, and was doing business development for them, and then went into the family business. So uh-huh. I think it's again, I would encourage people to get an experience if you're going to do a family business outside of the family business first. Uh, which again just allows you to bring those experiences and uh, different set of ideas back to the family business, which I think is healthy. What did you learn from uh, from running your family business? Well, uh, is the biggest thing on a family business is that you have to work hard to earn the respect of the people that have been there for a long time. How many folks work at your? So we have a little about one hundred and thirty five mm-hmm. folks that are working in the business today, and. Um, the people that I work with, they, they don't really care that I went to law school. They certainly don't care that I went to business school. The fact that I was a member of Congress maybe actually hurt me. Uh, <laughs> within, But you crawl the crawl space with them, all of a sudden then you've got their respect. And you know, I've never forgotten the idea that, you know, look, this is a, this is a business that, you know, we I have great pride in the work that we do and protecting, you know, people's homes and the food supply and all that other stuff. So um, I'm just enormously proud of what the work that we're able to do in the business. And frankly, when I look at that 135 people, that's 135 families uh, that we've been able to help. And my hope is, again, that we are one big family. That's the idea behind a family business is that, uh, frankly, we're able to operate a little bit differently than those that are doing quarterly earnings for Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, that's a pervasive issue uh, with companies that are uh, sort of slaves to those quarterly reports and their shareholders. And oftentimes it is at the expense of, I mean, the, the easiest way to um, to plus up that sheet is to cut labor costs. And uh, it's a concern for the country. It is. And when one of the things that, that certainly I'm very proud of is that during every downturn that uh, we've experienced uh, at no time do I know that we've ever laid people off because of a downturn. Now, certainly we've laid people off for other reasons or they've left for some other reasons, but we've never, we've just tightened our belt uh, largely because the goal of our organization, at least that I make sure everybody knows, is that we want long lasting relationships with coworkers and customers. So I was thinking as you were talking, maybe the answer to our problems in Washington is to get Republicans and Democrats to climb into crawl spaces together. <laughs> And well, you certainly that, you certainly are very close in that sort of a situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, that's a good thing to do. But again, rolling up your sleeves and kind of understanding what people that are living paycheck to paycheck uh, are going through, I think, is good medicine for frankly anybody that wants to be in public service and never to lose sight of those things. So, Mark Kirk represented your district before you did, and uh, you ran in a very crowded primary, and. Uh, it's certainly not unprecedented, um, but still, you you ran against people who had been office holders, at least some of them. Yep. Um, how did that whole process come about, your decision to run for public office? So 
At a, at a fairly high level. Yeah, there's there's an emotional and a practical side to it. So what I tell people is that the emotional side was, as a small business person, you know, I felt the government was making it harder and harder for me to put the key in the door of my small business than it is small business. And they should be making it easier for me to open my doors, easier for me to hire the next individual. That was kind of the emotional side, like, okay, do we run? And you know, no, by we we meant you. Me, well, yeah. we you, you meant in you. this instance. You meant you. In this instance, you mean, we means because me you're and my family. Wife. Yeah, and, and that's frankly, that's fair. That because it is a family decision. It, it, no question. And there was one person that could have ended this whole thing at any time, and that's my wife. But so we made a decision that we can do anything for six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what her words were. Uh, needless to say, did you mention to her that if you were successful, <laughs> it was going to be a lot longer. going to be longer months. than six months. Well. Again, in this type of a situation, the emotional side was that was the reason to step up to try to run. Uh, the practical side was is that, as you pointed out, Mark Kirk wasn't running, so it was an open uh, field because trying to run a business and a young family it certainly wasn't a convenient time to run for office. But the, the crowded primary, I think there was more people after I decided to jump in, other people decided to jump in, so it became more crowded. And I think ultimately we had about seven people that were in the primary uh, at one time. A couple of them dropped out, but it was was one of those things that we were never supposed to we were never supposed to win. We weren't really on the radar for the the National Republican Congressional Committee, and you know, so therefore we had to work hard to try to get their attention. And ultimately, um, nobody told us we weren't supposed to win. So we just outworked the other side and ultimately at the end of the day uh, emerged from the primary with 38% of the vote, uh, which was in that five-way primary at the end was pretty Enough. significant. Yeah. The uh, the experience that you had uh, starting from when you were a seven-year-old and uh, leafleting uh, for your dad and, and, sure. and the party through your experiences as an advanced person, your experience in uh, – in Congress, uh, working on a, as a staffer in Congress, how much did that help you in that uh, campaign? I think uh, more so the the grassroots type work helped largely because the the people that really got me over that initial threshold were the grassroots folks, and they wanted to know kind of where have you been, what have you done, and the fact that I was a precinct captain and had worked and carrying water uh, for the local. Uh, organization for a long time was helpful as opposed to someone that parachuted in and said, now is my time. I'm going to run and would like your support. And so, uh, you know, that I think was enormously helpful and also uh, helpful to try to make sure that, you know, you have to go knock on the doors. You have to, you know, in essence, interrupt people during dinner at the diner, uh, that sort of a thing. And that's one of those things you have to get over, something that I uh, saw happen in the past and knew that was one of the things that I needed to to do. And so I was, I guess I'd, I'd seen it a, a little up close before and was all too willing to uh, to help. I mean, the advance work, I think, was helpful in terms of kind of making sure that whatever images we were putting out, message of the day, do we have that in a picture? Uh-huh. And can we put that on Facebook or can we do those types of things? But there's nothing that's going to replace the the face to face, the opportunity to talk to people about you know why why me and what makes them 
comfortable enough to put their trust but in But there me. are a lot of first-time candidates who don't get all those nuances, and it's right. probably helpful uh, to have done that. So you were one of the—I remember it very well because I was on the other side of this uh, the night of the 2010 election. You yep. were one of the 63 new Republican members of Congress. I still have that. Yep. Uh, I still have those tire tracks on my back from uh, from it was, that election. It was a huge, huge class. I always, um, I always joke that uh, that Franklin Roosevelt lost seventy eight. I think it was maybe it was seventy three, but it was some number even larger than sixty three in nineteen thirty eight. So I figure, you know, we were better than Roosevelt. Sure, that's uh, yeah. I mean, you've, you've got that going for you, but. The thing is, the class was actually a bigger class because the numbers that you're not putting in there are those seats that Republicans left that Republicans filled. Right. So in terms of new faces, yeah. it was actually closer to 97 uh, new members of Congress that were coming in. Some of those Democrats that were filling for other Democrats, I think there were nine of them uh, that came in in a huge freshman class, 63, which had taken over four Democrats. I think something along those lines. So it was when you look at kind of just the institutional knowledge of the of the institution. You know, I think we've had over the course of the last few Congresses, over two thirds of them have been there less than six years. So it was. It's just interesting when you look at that. What is the impact of that? Well, I think you've got uh, a number of people that are looking to kind of come in and make a change immediately, not recognizing or understanding kind of the way things were. And the fact that the way things were in politics for a long time was this reference which people longingly look for in the Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan type thing that we can disagree without being disagreeable. We'll fight like cats and dogs during the day on policy, and at night we're going to be friends and and not be uh, holding That wasn't ranges. really the tenor of our politics in 2011 no, when you arrived in Washington. That was not the tenor of the politics then, and so uh, not in, in that time or in the next couple of Congresses. We've seen a, a kind of a sharp departure from that in that, you know, this was the first time that uh, when, when I came, we had taken over the House, uh, and so there was much kind of exuberance from the Republicans that we had taken over the House first time in a long time that we had actually controlled the gavel there and and then in uh you know coming back in 14 when we took over yeah, the well, senate don't 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 get yeah. don't don't get ahead of all right i won't get ahead of you wait, wait, but I, I so john boehner was the uh was this the speaker yeah uh, and it seems to me that he now he is someone who was sort of a he came in in 94 so it was a little bit after that 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 tip o'neill Yes. Uh, period. But he was someone who uh, he was a veteran of many Congresses and had relationships uh, across the aisle. He was chairman of the Education Committee, I think, at one point and worked. Uh, he was, yeah. Uh, and uh, my guess is that you were probably, you probably had a good relationship with him, did you not? I did. I had a very good relationship with uh, with John, with Speaker Boehner. And he. this is a guy that had a tremendous respect for the institution and would do anything to protect the institution and recognize that the institution worked best by making sure that he was giving and there was some give and take there, certainly with the other side. And he had a lot of great relationships. And frankly, when there was, um, when he was 
under some pretty significant pressure uh, from folks on our side of the aisle. I had conversations with others that would have come to his rescue should there be kind of a vote of no confidence to take him off the floor that they would have stepped up to vote in his favor. Yeah, because um, he he was faced with, and he's been very outspoken <laughs> since that, since he's he left. Free, he's, he's like a liberated man. Yeah, he is a liberated but man. But he talked about the, I guess, what now is formally described as the Freedom Caucus, but uh, these folks who were very inalterably opposed to compromise and the difficulties that posed. Um, how f- You were chairman of the of the Tuesday group. Right. Uh, my colleague Anderson Cooper did note one, uh, once in, uh, it, that branding may not work particularly well. <laughs> the, the Freedom Caucus versus the Tuesday, Tuesday group. group, yes. Yeah, the, we weren't strong marketers of the Tuesday group. <laughs> I, I want to let you know and make sure that people know that are listening. I did not brand it the Tuesday group. But um, What were your frustrations in dealing with uh, some of your colleagues from, from the right? Well, my frustration, uh, certainly from members on the right that are unwilling to either listen or compromise uh, on, and again, compromise is not a bad word, but knowing that we need to get 218 votes is that the frustration level is that they would constantly be moving things further and further to the right. Uh, and if you know this was a conservative um, piece of legislation, they wouldn't vote for it because they wanted to move it even further to the right. So the answer was generally always no regardless. And it got to the point where we needed folks from the Freedom Caucus, otherwise we weren't going to get 218 votes. And so the frustration level is it would put others in a particularly difficult situation in order to try to get things done. Why, um, I think people listening would ask, why 218 votes out of your own caucus? Why not uh, try and forge bipartisan coalitions around legislation, Which is, and forget what was the so-called Hastert rule that uh, you need a majority of the majority in order to move forward. Uh, I argued that with, uh, this, with frankly, of both speakers to say, look, if the Freedom Caucus is going to take us down that path, let's, let's cut the deal, and, and frankly, it's going to have much better opportunities, certainly in that first Congress when we had a democratically controlled Senate, to say, let's, let's absolutely – work with some Democrats and make sure we've got a bipartisan support, let the Freedom Caucus continue to go off further to the right. Uh, and the, before there was a Freedom Caucus, some of the folks that would have been in that caucus, and let me just give you an example, we're talking about a continuing resolution, how we're going to fund the government. We had an agreed-upon number. In the absence of a budget. In the absence of a budget, we have a continuing resolution, and the agreed-upon number between the House and the Senate was $1,028,000,000. It's a sizable number to, yeah. to, to fund the government for a period of time. And there were some on the right that said, you know what? We think we can do this for one trillion nineteen billion. And, you know, as I said, listen, I, I'd like to save $9 billion just like the next guy, but our agreed-upon number with the Senate is 1028. They said, nope, we're, we're not going to do 1028. We can do it for 1019. Ultimately, we put 1028 on the floor, and it failed because no Democrat voted for 1028 until the Republicans could show that we could get 218 votes. So it failed. Steny Hoyer, who was the whip, Democratic whip at the time, walked across the floor to Kevin McCarthy, who at the time was the Republican whip, and said, it looks like you need a few Democrat votes. The new number is 1048. Well, 
now you had Republicans that had voted for 1028 that were really having problems voting for another $20 billion in conservative districts. The more conservative guys that voted no on the 1028 because they wanted 1019 certainly weren't going to get there. And so my conversations with those folks were after we had to vote for 1048 and the speaker came to me and said, Bob, we need your vote because we're not going to shut the government down. I asked him, what makes you think my constituents want to spend an extra $20 billion? They said, well, we need you in order to keep the government up and operational. So I said, okay, uh, I'll vote for it. My conversations off the floor with them are, you guys just cost us an extra $20 billion. And they said, no, I voted no and hell no. So I didn't do a thing. And I said, no, no, we had an agreement for 1028. And if you had voted yes, we would have spent $1 trillion, $28 billion, But you voted no, so we're going to spend $1 trillion, $48 billion. So you spent an extra $20 billion of our children or our taxpayer dollars. And you need to understand that there's a there's a cost on some of these things that frankly, is going to end up hurting a lot of us. We're going to take a, another short break. We'll be right back with former Congressman Bob Dole. You were in a particularly difficult position because after redistricting in 2000, you had a pretty liberal district. Uh, uh, for, it, it got more liberal after the redistricting. Right. You, yeah. you, yes. I mean, uh, in the... Uh, redistricting in Illinois was in the hands of Democrats. Your district became more uh, Democratic. Um, so these kinds of debates put you really in a, a vice, uh, in a way. We were. We seemed like we were in the crosshairs for a good chunk of uh, of my time in, frankly, both different Congresses. But that's okay. I mean, that's um, you know. I, I knew what I was signing up for with regard to this and really felt we had an opportunity to try to, to move the needle. But we were constantly in the crosshairs because we had a, a Republican majority that wanted to pull things further to the right. Uh, and and ultimately, we had to try to appease some of those folks. And I, I honestly wish that we were able to get more stuff done and really believe that we would be able to have gotten more done uh, if we were able to try to forge a little bit more of a uh, – conciliatory tone it will uh i want to talk about your 2012 and 2014 and 16 races the winning losing winning uh but uh i guess it was losing winning losing but um uh as you look forward now it feels like um and we should point out you didn't endorse uh, President Trump, and we'll talk about that in a second. But sure. it feels like there may be, at best, a smaller Republican margin in the Congress in two thousand after two thousand and eighteen. It feels like there's great risk there for the Republican Party. That's what polling suggests right now. There's a lot of energy sure. on the on the Democratic side. If the margin is smaller and Democrats don't take over the House, which is a possibility. If the margin is smaller, will that encourage uh, more bipartisanship because that's the only way you can pass anything? Or will it just exacerbate, uh, assuming Paul Ryan is still the speaker, exacerbate his problem in trying to get stuff done? Yes. Yes, meaning it what? Both are going to happen. So what what I mean by that is that you'll have the (laughs) moderates that will go to the speaker's office basically saying that, look— 
we came to Washington to get things done. The only way that we're going to get things done is by working with the other side. We need to forge uh, an agreement to be able to have some give and take where, you know, again, as Ronald Reagan or, or as others have said, get us partway there. We'll get the rest, the rest next time. Uh, let's continue to make sure that we're moving forward. And so you're going to have a, a huge number of members of Congress go to the speaker to advocate that. And you're going to have others that will basically be championing the, we're not going to give in, we're going to continue to take the hard line. You know, in essence, we're not going to, we need to continue to be the champions of this, largely because the way their districts are drawn, that's what they they want, their constituents want them to be banging that drum. And ultimately what that is, is that's a recipe for uh, absolute gridlock, for nothing to happen. And I would argue that that is not what people generally were sent to Congress to do. They were sent, hopefully, to solve some problems. And even if it's not everything that you want, my hope is that you're getting something there that you can look at your children in the eye and say, this is what we were able to do to try to make life a little bit easier, a little bit better, uh, try to make sure that we were growing our economy a little bit. might not be everything that we wanted, but ultimately we need to know that this is the things that we're fighting for. A lot of your colleagues in the in the Tuesday group uh opposed uh the uh the house bill um uh, health care bill and many opposed it even as revised um wh- wh- how would you have voted on that for you me had I voted to repeal the affordable care act uh, multiple times when you were in the house and i also voted not to um as it got later so in the first term, it was more of this hasn't really rolled out. Let's not let's not move forward. I didn't think that the way it came about, um, in terms of without a single Republican vote, when you're talking about one fifth of our economy, not the appropriate way to do it. So, but with 130 Republican amendments, with with amendments, no question about it. But I still think that the process was not the appropriate one mm-hmm. and was against it. And then once it had been rolled out. Uh, again, I was campaigning and believed that you can't take something away from folks without having the alternative, having the replacement there. And so even during that second term, voted not to, was one of very, like I think two or three Republicans to vote not to repeal the Affordable Care Act, largely because we hadn't come up with what the replacement was going to be. And in this plan— Because you lost in 2012 to to the to the— uh, to Brad Schneider uh, in uh, in the presidential year. Uh, uh, President right. Obama was running away with the district, I'm sure. Yes. And then you won in the mid in the uh, midterm in 2014. 14. Each of them were three-point races or something? Well, the race in 2012, we lost by seven-tenths of a percent uh, when President Obama won the district by 17. And then in 2014, we won by four points. And then uh, this last time around with President Trump uh, at the top of the ticket, we lost by four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you were talking about voting against repeal, you're talking about in that second term? In that second term. So 2015. Right. Uh, 2016. Uh, so had you been in Congress, how would you have voted on, on the uh, bill that the House passed? This most recent bill, I would have voted no uh, in the sense that I do not believe that the replacement was one that uh, was up to speed. Uh, I don't think that it was ready, as they say, ready for prime time. 
Uh, and I do think that it does require some additional work. Not Again, the thing that I hear from constituents, again, as we see premiums that are on the rise, deductibles that have gone through the roof, um, I do think that there is certainly things within the, for, the Affordable Care Act that need to be changed. Uh, and, you know, colleagues, frankly, on, on the Democratic side of the aisle will, will say the same. Yeah, sure. And ultimately, this is about, you know, my, my hope is, can we get beyond this now? Can we start to fix it? Can we fix this issue? Because this is something that's going to impact every single American. And ultimately, um, you know, this is something that but, it's one fifty of the So for me, it was a, I would have been a no. Um, on this until I had seen. Let me ask you a question, and I think it's 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 one that's been asked a lot. But you were there. How is it? How is it after all those years of voting to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act that you say there there wasn't a ready for prime time proposal? Shouldn't there have been a ready for prime time proposal? Yes, um, I think there there should have been, and I recognize that this is still a process. Uh, and again, healthcare is tough. I yeah, mean, there, there's no question. Complicated is, as the president. It's a, it's a, it is a very complicated issue, and ultimately, I think that some of the things that uh, the Republicans are talking about in terms of patient-centric care are are positives. Those are really good things. We want people to be more in control of the health care that they're going to be able to receive. But again, how it gets rolled out and what the actual details are are extremely important. Uh, and those are not things that you can gloss over or even put together with a 30,000-foot type scenario. So talk to me about the 2016 race, because that yeah. must have been uh, excruciating <laughs> um, to be running in a district. What, what did? Tell me again, what was Hillary Clinton's margin in your district? Hillary Clinton uh, won the district by 32 points. And so, you lost by four, which is— Pretty remarkable. Yours, I think, is was the most Democratic district uh, represented by a Republican in the country. Yeah. Um, what was your thought processes as you watched this presidential race unfold? And was there ever a point where you said, um, in the parlance of the pest business, "I'm about to be exterminated"? <laughs> Honestly, no. Um, we, I thought, uh, as did my team, that we even, you know, election night after all the regular votes were in and we were just waiting for the early vote to come in, we thought we were going to win this race. And, you know, we worked, you know, we did about 2,200 events in the district and were able to get a message out. And, and again, as a, a master record as one of the most independent and bipartisan members in the United States Congress, which is exactly what the district, I think, was looking for. Uh, Donald Trump, I think, was was one of those things that, Frankly, had it been anybody else running, I, I think that we would be in Congress today. I mean, I understand the politics of why you didn't endorse Trump, but what, personally, yeah, uh, what was your? Listen, for me, I, I um, my oldest daughter's named uh, Jacqueline Harper Dold. We named her Harper after my uncle, who was a POW in Vietnam. He was the second one shot down shot down. He was flying off the USS Coral Sea on an F-8 Crusader. Um, he ejected out of his plane uh, 35 feet above the ground, broke his back on impact, and for the next eight years and a day was in captivity. When Donald Trump came out to say that he didn't think John McCain was a hero because he was captured and shot down, he prefers those that were not shot down. For me, that right there and then, 
uh, I said, this is not someone that I can support to be commander in chief for me very personally. Um, because the one thing that we do know, David, is that someone's going to be shot down again. Uh, and it's not going to be something that we want to have happen. We just know that there will be a conflict. There will be an American serviceman or servicewoman that's going to be flying uh, a mission that's going to be shot down. And what we don't need is them to believe that the commander in chief doesn't think highly of them or prefers somebody else. Uh, honestly, if anybody wants to say that, that my uncle or John McCain or any of those POWs aren't heroes, to me is completely unacceptable. And 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 as 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 Vince wore on, did did you have any second thoughts about that? No, I never had any second thoughts about did that. You, I, I recognized that people were were angry with me. They said, "How can you not support Donald Trump? He's our nominee and the like." And I said, "Look, I will support whomever you send to the to sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue in the sense that I'm going to work with whomever's there to be the voice of the tenth congressional district. But I'm not going to go back. Nor would you want me to change my position." On that, I was, certainly was not a Hillary supporter. I think there was some integrity issues there, uh, which I'm happy to talk about if you want to. But you know, I doesn't me, seem I, relevant anymore. But. It's, it's not. I mean, I, listen. I I wrote in somebody. Actually, I wrote in an African American woman to be the president of the United States. So um, I don't have any regrets because who was it? Condoleezza Rice. Mm-hmm. So I, I I don't have any regrets about uh, the way things went down or. Uh, the positions that I've taken, uh, I stand by them, and, and I'm happy to discuss them with anybody. I had some people ask me, you know, would you work with the president, with you know Donald Trump, if he became president? I said, of course, mm-hmm. just like I would work with any president. And there's a significant amount of things that I know uh, that my colleagues would like to to try to tackle, uh, including you know tax reform and regulatory reform. Uh, we have obviously uh, a big issue with regard to health care to ensure that we have uh, quality, affordable care for people that is going to take people coming together to solve issues. And, you know, as you we, say, we've it's got, complicated. We've got complicated. Well, tax reform is going to be complicated. We have a lot of complicated issues and that we need basically all the rows, all the oars in the water uh, rowing the same direction. And frankly, I would argue that we want those oars to be Republican and Democrat oars in that water row in the same direction when you uh when you talk to your colleagues just to extend your analogy about the oars in the water at what point do people start jumping out of the canoe here <laughs> i i don't think that there's an uh, i think that there are some people that are are looking at this and saying to speaker ryan you know we've got to move forward with our agenda and i think there's going to be a push to continue to talk about what well, what is Congress doing? What is Congress doing? It's it's obviously being overshadowed by um, tweets and what happens at, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, ultimately, you know, we still have to govern and we need to move forward. I think there's a lot of people out there concerned that uh, the legislature— It's hard to do, though, when the environment is so focused on uh, the sort of contretemps of the day, isn't it? It is extraordinarily difficult. And, you know, I—, I I would argue that, you know, ultimately we want to move forward with a legislative agenda, and that's why hopefully things can calm down, and hopefully people can have an opportunity to look at the issues and, and try to do it. I, I think that we're The keyword is hopefully. Hopefully you, you, there. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my colleagues, at least many that I continue to talk with, you know, are concerned that 
they're not going to because pretty quickly, as you well know, we were going to be in political season. Yeah, and the campaigns are going to people take understand over. that how short the legislative kind of opportunity is because you turn the corner after Labor Day, and people are already campaigning for reelection and. Uh, and and to take to to focus on these complicated issues and take political risks becomes yeah. much more difficult. It does, and and what people also have to recognize is that if you're calling it Labor Day, turning the corner, which is completely accurate, Congress is out in most of August, mm-hmm. so you've got till basically August one to be able to to really have that policy agenda really start to start to take hold and then afterwards the the politics really starts to kind of be pervasive in this thing and certainly by the time the new year rolls around people are in full re-election mode and as you point out uh given at current course and speed it's not likely that the next congress is going to be easier than this one no i think it, it's but it has a real potential to be much more difficult in the next one and you know, I think, what is it, three Congresses or three elections since in the last hundred and some odd years where the incumbent party has gained or maintained seats. So I think that uh, certainly the odds are against the incumbent party, which would be the Doesn't Republicans. Doesn't look right. This is like the optimal year to buck the tide either, given the current events in Washington. But again, every time I've made it any sort of a, yes. a, an assessment with, yes. with this president, are not, my yeah. predictions have, have been yeah. wrong, but... Um, yeah, I mean, certainly uh, as a student of history, it does not look uh, promising for any, certainly any gains, which would mean it would be more difficult in this next Congress to get uh, a Republican agenda moved forward. So let me ask you about yourself as we uh, f- yeah. finish up here. You, you are only 47 years old, uh, and uh, that's relatively young, uh, especially in an age when we hear the names of octogenarians and septagenarians being bandied about as potential presidential candidates. Uh, what, uh, what, what's in the future for you? Are you done with public service? Because you seem to really enjoy it. Listen, I, it's been the honor of my life to be able to be the voice and, and serve the people of the 10th Congressional District. I think public service is something that, frankly, each and every one of us ought to be looking at how we serve uh, in some way, shape, or form. It may be uh, narrow it may be with a school board, it may be uh, helping out, it may be volunteering, but for me, I think public service is absolutely critical, and I would love to have the opportunity to serve again i and what I said in a, in a statement before i just don 't think twenty thousand or two thousand and eighteen is going to be the year for me, so I am uh, not looking to run in uh, for Congress in two thousand and eighteen and am going to look to try to see how we might be able to spend more time with the family and uh, try to work on. Uh, the private sector type stuff, and hopefully keep options open down the road. Whether that happens or not, I don't know, um, but certainly would welcome an opportunity to serve. Maybe uh, could it be statewide rather than? Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not closing any doors on on anything. Um, I just think it's a, it's important to keep options open, and I would love to have the opportunity to serve again in some capacity. Well, I really appreciate you, uh, Bob, and I. You know, we don't agree on on some stuff, but uh, we do agree on how important it is to find answers and do it in a way that is constructive, and uh, uh, you're a great example in that regard. So, David, thank we you. Appreciate you. Really appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app.
And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.